Hello, and welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. Going to do a little something different in this study uh, that I don't usually do. I'm, what I'm going to do is give you just a little pre-preview of our upcoming study, the Book of James, and hopefully you're going to get something out of it. Uh, we're going to be in James chapter one, the first eight verses. Once again, that's James one verses one through eight. Uh, I'm not going to give you references a lot of times. I'm just going to talk about what's contained here. Uh, hopefully, like I said, you're going to get something out of it. First, we have, Father, thank you that we can study your word, that your word is available to us, Lord. There are so many believers in this world that don't have access to your word. And I thank you, Father that your Holy Spirit will allow us to read and study. And I ask you, Father, to open our hearts, minds, souls, spirit, and body to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. You know, seeing the cartoon Charlie Brown, you know, Charlie Brown builds a beautiful sand castle, works on it for hours. You know, finally he stands back, he looks at it, it's wonderful. Just as he's admiring it, storm comes up, blows over all of his sandcastle. Now he's standing where his beautiful masterpiece was, on level sand. He's saying to himself, I know there's a lesson in this. I'm not sure what it is. You know, one thing everyone has in common is that we've had storms come and wipe out our sandcastles. We have all faced trials. We've all wrestled through the struggles of life. Some of our struggles are extremely tragic. Some, by comparison, are less traumatic. But they're real. All of them. Now, the Bible, Bible refers to these struggles as trials. Now, the term trials that's used in these verses means a test. It's often translated temptation in other contexts. But the trials in this case are the tests of faith that come from low-grade persecution, from outside the church, and from conflict within the church. You know, trials are struggles, adversity, affliction, and sorrow. And our normal human reaction to struggles is we throw up our hands and give up. We get angry. We turn bitter. We turn to something to ease the pain. Or we have hostility. You know, the first question I have for you, though, is how should I view, how should you view your struggles? You know, because they are inevitable, inevitable, whenever, not if. You know, Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, the first sentence in that book is, "Life is difficult," and it is. It is inevitable that you're going to have problems in life. You know, 1 Peter 4.12 tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. They are unpredictable. You know, we face trials, according to James. Now, that word face means to literally, literally to fall into unexpectedly. You know, trials are not planned. 
we seldom can anticipate the problems we're going to experience in life. And that's probably good because if we could anticipate them, we'd probably run the other way. We wouldn't get the benefit from them. You know, we don't plan to have a flat tire. We don't plan to have a crisis. They're unplanned and they're unpredictable. They come when we least expect them. You know, that's what makes a problem a problem. Often it's inconvenient when you fall into it suddenly. And the trials are not all the same. You know, there are many kinds, as James says. You know, the idea of multicolored trials. They come in all shapes and sizes. Some are minor inconveniences. Some are major crises. Now, we have all kinds and shapes of problems. Unlike Baskin Robbins, they do come in more than 31 flavors. Some problems are custom made, and you know it. Now, there's a sign I saw this week that said, Into every life some rain must fall. But this is ridiculous. Now, lots of varieties of problems in our life. Now, it must have rained a lot where that, you know. Now, the Message Bible says, Consider it a sure gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. The Net Bible, my brothers and sisters, consider it nothing but joy when you fall into all sorts of trials. Now, I'm not recommending either the Net Bible or the Message Bible to, to, to any of you. Uh, the Message Bible is a good Bible for reading. It's not good for studying. Okay? The Net Bible is probably difficult to understand. Probably falls right in there with the King James Version as being a difficult Bible to understand. Uh, you can try them out if, if, if you like, but uh, I'm not going to recommend a Bible to you. Now, true joy doesn't come cheaply. It doesn't come as a fleeting superficial emotion either. Real joy is produced by much deeper factors than the circumstances that produce superficial happiness. Now, if, if you're struggling through the negative circumstances of life, if you're floundering in doubt and dismay, you know, if you forget... You, you have forgotten that genuine joy resides in the confidence that your life is hidden with Christ and God. And in God's providence, that joy and assurance can be most strong during a trial. You know, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. You know, don't understand what James is saying. He's not saying fake it. Put on a plastic smile. Pretend. He's not saying be something you're not. God never asks you to deny reality. And he doesn't mean some kind of psychological pump-up based on nothing. He's also not talking about masochism. Good. You know, you're going, good, I get to suffer. I just love to suffer. I feel so spiritual when I feel bad. You know, James is not having a martyr complex. We don't rejoice for the problem. We rejoice in the problem. You know, we don't thank God for the situation. Why would I thank God for evil? But I thank God in the situation that he's allowed me to go through it so that I can, so that I will learn a little more about him. You know, the key word is count in this verse. It's a financial term. It means to evaluate. Paul uses it several times in Philippians chapter 3. Because when Paul became a Christian, he evaluated his life and he set new goals and priorities. 
things that were once important to him became garbage in the light of his experience with Christ. And when we face the trials of life, we must evaluate them in the light of what God is doing for us. And it, can, it explains why the dedicated Christian can have joy in the midst of trials. He lives for the things that matter most. We're to evaluate our trials on the basis of eternal realities. And what are those realities? The first one is, God is in control. You know, Genesis 50:20, Joseph, talking to his brothers in Egypt, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The second reality about trials are that they are God's special gifts to us. Psalm 55:22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now the Hebrew there literally reads, Commit to the Lord what he has given to you or laid upon you. Now the word for burden, cast your burden on the Lord there in Psalm 55:22, literally means that which is given as a gift. Let that sink in for a minute. You know, God promises his deliverance and eternal blessing. Hebrews chapter 12, 2. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychologist who spent time in a Nazi, in a Nazi concentration camp in Germany, said, they stripped me naked. They took everything. My wedding ring, watch. I stood there naked and all of a sudden realized at that moment that although they could take everything away from me, my wife, my family, my possessions, they could not take away my freedom to choose how I was going to respond. You see, the point is, you choose to rejoice in the situation. Psalm 34, 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You've probably sang a song based on that verse more than once in your church. So what does God want to produce in me through my struggles? This is James 1, verses 3 and 4. You know, in order to use us, God says God sets in motion a plan for shaping us into the kind of people he wants us to be. Sometimes that means we experience awful pain, giving up what we want to keep, and going forward into areas we'd rather leave unexplored. But if we're going to be used by the Lord for his purposes, that process has to take place. Our problems are purposeful. Our problems have a point. Because in my trials, God wants to purify my faith. James uses the word testing, as in testing gold and silver. You heat them until they're very hot, until the impurities are burned off. Job said, he has tested me through the refining fire, and I have come out as pure gold. See, the first things trials do is test our faith. They purify us. Christians are a lot like tea bags. You know, you don't know what's inside of them until you drop them in hot water. 
in my trials, God wants to develop perseverance in me. You know, against great obstacles, William Wilberforce, an evangelical member of Parliament in England, fought for the abolition of the African slave trade and against slavery itself. He fought against it until they were, you know, he wanted to make them illegal in the British Empire. That battle consumed almost 46 years of his life, from 1787 to 1833. The defeats and setbacks along the way would have caused any ordinary politician to embrace a more popular cause. Yeah, he never lost a parliamentary election from age 21 to 65. The cause of abolishing the slave trade was defeated 11 times before it got passed in 1807. And the battle for abolishing, abolishing slavery itself did not gain a, the decisive victory until three days before he died in 1833. And during those 46 years, he, he battled illness. He had eye problems and ulcerative colitis. He was bound to the one medication they had in those days to, to deal with the pain. That was opium. He lost friends forever. And those who sided with him lost as well. Yet he persevered. You see, and, and in my trials, God wants to cultivate my character and my maturity. That's God's long-range goal. His ultimate purpose is maturity. God wants you to grow up. He wants you to mature. In the Christian life, character is the bottom line. So many Christians I talk to have absolutely no idea of God's agenda in their life. They don't know what's happening. And as a result, they get overwhelmed by their problems. You know, because God's number one purpose in your life is to make you like, just like Jesus Christ. God is much more interested in building my character than he is in making me comfortable. And that holds true for you, too. So where can you turn for help in your struggles? Verses 5 to 8 of James chapter 1. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Charles Swindle, once called wisdom, the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. When we operate in the sphere of the wisdom of God, as Swindle wrote, we look at life through lens of perception. And we respond to it in calm confidence. There's a remarkable absence of fear. We can either lose our jobs or we can be promoted in our work. And neither will derail us because we see it with God-given objectivity and we handle it in his wisdom. Now more than a century ago, on the streets of Port Hope, Ontario in Canada, a man could be seen walking along carrying a saw and a sawhorse. One day, a rich man from across the street saw him and he said to a friend, Hey, he looks like a sober man. I think I'll hire him to cut wood for me. Oh, that's Joseph Scriven, the friend replied. He wouldn't cut wood for you. 
He only cuts wood for those who don't have enough to pay. Now that sums up the philosophy of Joseph Medlicott, Medlicott Scriven. He was a devoted member of the Plymouth Brethren Church. That church takes the Sermon, of the Ma- Sermon on the Mount literally. Scriven was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1819. He fell in love with a lovely young woman, but on the eve of their wedding she accidentally drowned. Scriven never recovered from the shock. The Irishman began to wander, he hoped, hoping to forget his sorrow. When he was 25 years old, he finally settled in Canada. And his faith led him to do menial tasks for poor widows and for the sick. He often worked for no wages and was regarded by the people of the community as a kind man, although you know he's a little bit odd. He later fell in love again and planned to marry a wonderful Canadian woman. But again, tragedy struck. His fiancée died after contracting pneumonia. Then in 1855, a friend visited Scriven. Scriven was, was ill at the time, and he found a poem that Scriven had written for his ailing mother in faraway Ireland. See, Scriven didn't have the money to pay his fare to go visit her, so he sent her the poem as an encouragement. He called it Pray Without Ceasing. When the friend asked about the poem's origins, Scriven reportedly answered, The Lord and I did it between us. And he never intended for the poem to be published. But it made its rounds and was set to music in 1868 by musician Charles Converse, who gave it the title, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You may have heard of that song. Scriven died in 1886, ironically, in an accidental drowning. In his memory, the town of Port Hope erected a monument with this inscription from Scriven's famous song. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. And here are the words of that song. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We, we should never be discouraged. Take it, take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise you, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. You know, a woman com- complained to her father about how difficult her life had become. What can I do about it, she asked. He said, 
I'll, I'll tell you, but first, I, I need to show you something. Took her to the kitchen, took out three pots of water, put them on the boiling. He put carrots in the first pan, eggs in the second pan, he put tea bags in, in tea bags in the third pan. The water boiled for a while. Then he asked his daughter to go examine the contents of, of each pot. You know, he had her cut the carrots, peel the egg, and taste the tea. So she asked her father, "What does all this mean?" And he said, each of these teach something about facing adversity. The carrot went into the boiling water hard, but it came out soft and weak. The egg went in fragile, but it came out hardened. And the tea turned the water into something better. He then asked his daughter, when you find yourself in hot water, which will you be? Will it make you weak? Will it make you hardened? Or will you turn adversity into, into triumph? James wrote, Consider it a sure gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and show its true colors. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 from the Message Bible. So, that's my short message from James for this session. I trust that maybe you got a little something out of it. And I hope you will take it to heart. This has been The Perfect Puzzle.